welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this May 2018 episode is the new Family Tree Magazine. It's got a fresh new look, and you're going to hear all about it from the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Diane Haddad. And then we'll talk about other changes in the genealogy world. Gina Philibert Ortega is here to cover ancestry. Dave Frixell is going to be digging into elephind.com. And Shannon Combs Bennett will help us make sense of one of the biggest changes in genealogy, DNA. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Well, in this episode, we're going to talk about Family Tree Magazine. Surprise, surprise. And I want to kind of start back at the beginning. And I want to build on kind of letting you know what is changing over at Family Tree Magazine. And so let's start with the publisher. And that is Allison Dolan. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. It's funny, a lot of people listen to podcasts. I mean, they just picked it out of the iTunes store or the podcast app. And they know this is about genealogy. So we've been delivering lots of great genealogy content. But they may actually not be as familiar or have seen an issue of the magazine. So I'd love to have you start us off before we talk about what's new and give us a little bit of background about Family Tree Magazine. Absolutely. I'd love to. Family Tree Magazine is in its 19th year of publication, actually. We're coming up on 20, which is really crazy for me to think about because I've been here since pretty much the very beginning. And for those who are regular listeners of our podcast, you'll recognize that really whether it's the podcast or the magazine, the mission is really the same as when we started with everything that we do. We're here to help people discover, preserve, and celebrate their family history. And so that's the core of all of the content in Family Tree Magazine as well as on the podcast. Exactly. And tell us how long you've been around. Family Tree Magazine is in its 19th year of publication. So we're coming up on our 20th anniversary, and we're also coming up on the 10th anniversary of our podcast, which is hard to imagine. I know. I can't believe it. It's been 10 years. What was the original mission of the magazine that came well before the podcast? Yeah. So as I mentioned just a minute ago, discover, preserve, and celebrate is our tagline. And when we entered into the market with Family Tree Magazine, we kind of thought about it as, you know, We wanted to tap into this genealogy thing that was getting kind of hot. And it really, I think we thought of it as a little more general interest than it ended up being. What we found is there's this really um, enthusiastic and intensely interested community of family historians who are really all about genealogy and advancing their discoveries in their family history. And so we made Family Tree Magazine a forum for reading um, material about genealogy and serving that community. But, you know, magazines like communities have to adapt with what's happening around them. And so that's why we're going to be talking about what's new at Family Tree Magazine with Diane, our editor, a little bit later. So much has changed in nearly 20 years. I mean, I think about when Ancestry.com kind of first started really bringing out major databases. Family search has evolved tremendously. And all of that, including online family trees, has changed the way so many people research today. 
talk a little bit about that because I imagine those kinds of changes over time really affect then what you want to deliver in the magazine. Absolutely. I remember when I first came on board with Family Tree Magazine and was in an editorial capacity, you know, we were covering things like the fact that Ancestry.com and some others were racing to digitize the U.S. Census, and now we kind of take that for granted. We were just starting to understand the possibilities and the potential of DNA testing. My One of my favorite anecdotes is that at an early genealogy conference I attended, there was actually a tent where people were drawing blood <laughs> to do DNA <laughs> analysis for genealogy. Thank goodness we don't do that anymore. And if you think about it, like so much has changed in society at large. 24-7 social media is now ubiquitous. Like when we hadn't heard of Facebook then, it didn't exist the sort of constant bifurcation of our attention span (laughs) and certainly how DNA has become so integral that people are coming into genealogy having taken a DNA test instead of doing genealogy and then making DNA just part of that toolbox. So that's why it's time for an update. We're trying to be more relevant to all of those people and all of those um, circumstances that are part of our lives now. And really making the magazine content kind of approach things in the way that our audience is approaching things. Well, that's why I remember when you and I first talked about doing the podcast just about 10 years ago, you know, it was the idea that sometimes people are in their car and they don't, you know, have time necessarily. They don't have that magazine right in front of them, but we want to stay with them and kind of meet them where they are. And that's something that you guys do so well is meeting them in all the different places where people are in their life. So, how do they meet you? Where do they find the magazine? Yeah, that's a great question. So Family Tree Magazine is published seven times a year, and you can find copies on newsstands. Most frequently, we're found at Barnes & Noble and other kinds of bookstores, but some grocers like Kroger's and Joann's fabric stores also carry Family Tree Magazine. So um, if you don't have it in a retail outlet near you, Um, particularly in a bookstore, you can ask your bookstore to carry it and they can look into having it. But if you can't find it on a local newsstand, you can always purchase copies, print and digital from our website, familytreemagazine.com slash store. Also, we offer subscriptions, which is, of course, the most convenient way to read Family Tree Magazine because it just shows up in your mailbox seven times a year, which is great. And of course, um, you get a little bit of a price break for doing that. The newsstand issues cost $8.99, and subscriptions um, generally are around the $30 range. So you do get a savings on that and the convenience of just automatically receiving it each time we have a new issue. My favorite option, though, actually is something we call our VIP membership, and that includes a subscription to the print magazine getting delivered um, seven times a year to your mailbox. Plus our Family Tree Premium membership, which is all of the archived content of what we've published in the past, plus all of our new exclusive content that's going up on our website. So it's basically a website membership, and you get both of those for $59.99 a year, which is a big price bake over the regular cost. And then you get it all. It's so fun to kind of look back over the last uh, nearly 20 years of Family Tree Magazine. And now we're going to look forward and talk to uh, Diane in our next segment to kind of hear about what's new and fresh at Family Tree Magazine. Thank you so much. And hey, congratulations on a very long and wonderful run. There's lots more of new things to come. Thank you. 
In this month's news from the blogosphere, I've invited the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Diane Haddad, to join me and talk about the biggest news right now. And that's the new Family Tree Magazine. Hello, Diane. Hi. Hey, let's talk about this paper and digital beauty. The, the world of genealogy <laughs> continues to change, right? And it's a- this new look really reflects that. So tell us all, what do you love about the new look of the magazine? Well, we've been working on it since last year. And one thing we were really going for was kind of a lighter, fresher look. And I think we achieved that with the brighter pictures, more pictures, and more resting space for your eyes. So it makes it more approachable. You know, it's not like a a wall of words. So we're still bringing all that information, but just trying to make it easier for people to find what they're looking for, more accessible for people. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of us, we still love our paper magazine, but you are Mm kind of, you put it down, you pick it up, you put it down, you pick it up, what, you know, what you're doing in life, you can kind of jump to blocks of areas versus like you said, a big wall of text. So it's, it's a beautiful look. Yeah. Thank you. There's more opportunities now to bring readers inspiration from genealogists like them. We have, um, some interviews. We have the, there's a column called Stories to Tell where it talks about kind of a surprising find in a genealogist's life. It kind of tells people what might happen for them in their family history. So it kind of gives more of the context. Yes. And I noticed in, in the, this first issue, this is the May, June 2018 issue. That's where we're really going to see kind of this new fresh look. And I love the piece on Ellis Island. It feels like it kind of takes its time to, to really walk through it and bring the reader with it. Yeah, there were a lot of elements to that. A lot of it was visual with the pictures. And then there's a timeline. And then there's descriptions of what the pictures are showing you, what you see now, connecting that to what happened in those places when our ancestors were on Ellis Island. So I think that's great for people maybe who haven't been able to go there yet. And then also um, just to kind of be able to walk in your ancestors' footsteps. I think that's kind of what we're all trying to do when we research our family history. Right. And it it is inspiring. It's kind of nice. It's like little shots in the arm of, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. keep going. There's there's more to find and some really inspiring stories from people and their finds. Inspiration. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think this really also brings a new element, which is answering the question for people who are new to genealogy. And there's always new people, particularly with the way DNA testing is taking off and just riding high, that when they come to the magazine, not only are they learning, but they're learning about why we're all so obsessed. Mm -hmm. Right. And one thing I want to tell people about is that you have a column in the issue. It's called Lisa's Picks. And it's things that you've come across as you do your family history and go to visit historical sites and read books that have to do with family history, just like things that are cool that other people I think will also enjoy. So cool finds like that. There's places now where we're bringing people those things. Yes, I'm having a blast doing that column. In fact, I travel so much, you know, and it's now I'm always thinking, not am I just taking pictures for for myself, but I'm really thinking about what I want to bring to readers in that column and be able to, to share some of the amazing places. Like in this first issue, we talk about that Homestead Museum out in Nebraska, which is, yeah. it was just fascinating. So it's it's really fun to bring these to it. And I want to go there. Yes, I know. It was so interesting. Down to the details of the parking lot is exactly one acre, you know, uh-huh. and just the, the roof line of the building looks like a plow. It's amazing. Right. 
So, well, gosh, so anything else that we should keep our eyes out for as we're working through the new magazine? Something else that I wanted to tell people about is this column called Your Turn that asks people a question about, um, that gets them to reminisce about their own lives and their family history. And that has a PDF on our website. There's a link to it where you can download it and then you can type in your answers and then keep all those things together. And it's kind of creating a book as you add to it every month. So I thought that was a really cool feature. Very cool. And it's actually building the family history of the future, isn't it? Yes. Wonderful. Well, go check out Diane's article on the Genealogy Insider blog, because this kind of gives you that visual introduction, it's called Introducing Family Tree Magazine's New Look. And of course, you'll see it in the new issue, May, June 2018, and going forward. And I know next month, we're going to get together and we're going to talk about some new things that are going to be happening here on the podcast as we approach 10 years. Can you believe it? Yes. So fun. Hey, great. Congratulations on it. Thanks so much, Diane. Thank you. In this month's Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I want to help you become an Ancestry.com power user. And so I've invited the instructor to the newly updated course that helps you do just that. And she's going to join me here and share some tips to help you get started. Welcome back to the show, Gina Philibert Ortega. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh, it's always fun to have you back. We love having you here. And we've been talking a lot in this episode about change change that's going on at the magazine. And we all know that things have changed a lot over at Ancestry.com. So let's just start off with a quick overview. Like in the last decade, what's changed at Ancestry? You know, in my opinion, they've really gone from a company that provides information to genealogists or family historians to one that you know, they're a household name. Everybody knows what Ancestry.com is. And I think that's because they provide so many different services. You don't have to be a family historian to connect with Ancestry. So, I mean, let's talk about the biggest one, and that's DNA. They have 7 million and growing in their database. You know, 7 million people. That's that's amazing. Their tests are available in four continents and 35 countries, and that's growing. And so it encourages non-family historians to provide information, not only their DNA, but also a family tree. And that is wonderful for us genealogists because that provides us more information and information that we may not have access to if we're just relying on people who love genealogy and do it as a pastime or a profession. Right. I think that's a big change that who the audience is and who we're running into as we're working with family trees and DNA match results. We're dealing with everybody from the one person who did the swab and that was it. They just wanted a pie chart to the one who's been doing it for 30 years. And so there's a wide range of kind of content and it's all kind of circulating right there at Ancestry. You know, it definitely is. And it's a wide range of people. I mean, I think about my teenager who did a DNA test or my young nephew you know, all the way to asking your grandma to do it. I mean, it's it's just a wonderful range of people that are getting involved. And so that's going to help us. But if we look at other aspects of ancestry that have changed, I think about the continuing growth of what's available to us. You know, there's city directory database, for example, in the United States. 
homestead records. I was using those the other day, and those are fabulous. Mm -hmm. There's a whole set of Mexican vital records. So those collections are growing, and that's because Ancestry has these collaborative partnerships with places like FamilySearch, and they also seek out content. So that's another change, I think, this continuation. You know, they're not afraid to try different things. And one of the aspects, I don't know if you've noticed, is they're starting to do heritage trips. Yeah. And that's fabulous. They're, you know, they're going to Ireland, they're doing a cruise. So they're giving you the opportunity not only to discover who you are through DNA, to research your past, but they're also giving you the opportunity to experience it firsthand. So Ancestry is providing you all these different tools to make the most of your research and the story of your ancestors' lives. Right. And I know making the most of it is what you cover in the course that you teach over at Family Tree University, which has become an Ancestry.com power user. I'd love to have you share some tips. What are some of your favorite tips that come out of that course that you feel like our listeners can use right now? You know, one that I really try to stress with, even when I do in-person presentations, is it's important to remember that Ancestry is much more than searching by a name, date, and place. That's how we're introduced to using Ancestry, and that's great, and we need to continue that. But actually, Ancestry does have databases that do not have names. And so you might want to think in terms of image collections, for example. They have a whole postcard collection from the U.S. and from Europe. They also have the Sears catalog. I don't know if you knew that, Lisa, but the Sears catalog is fabulous for genealogy because it allows us to take a step back in our ancestors' time and do everything from IDing that fraternal order jewelry that you see in that photograph. Yes, Sears did sell that. (laughs) And, you know, looking at maybe your ancestors' cut glass dishes and finding out where they did that. So it gives you that kind of add-on of social history to help you better explain your ancestors' life. So one of the things I try to encourage people to do is not just use that homepage search, but actually go to the card catalog and find some of these collections that are not name-based. Yes, I love that. You know, we hit that search box And I think people miss that card catalog link. And that's the gold mine, right? Oh, you know, it is because I just think even the postcard collection, I love the postcard collection because, you know, here you can search by a place. Let's say you find grandma's high school. You know, those old postcards had all kinds of images. They, They showed homes and buildings and public places that can really help you tell that story. And I think that's important. People don't want to just see names, dates, places in a boring chart. They want to hear the story. And so image collections, the Sears catalog, they have a Library of Congress image collection as well. Those are the things that can help your genealogy, but they're not often what we think of when we think of Ancestry.com. Right. And, you know, you're talking about images and things. And when you go into that search field, a lot of times, people will think that they're obligated, they have to put in a name, at least a surname. And that's not the case, is it? 
No. And many of the databases on Ancestry allow you to do a keyword search. And that's really what we're talking about here is doing a keyword search. I think because when we're introduced to genealogy and we see that, you know, search engine that says name, date, place, we do feel like we have to enter those things in. But you really want to play with that. And you want to try doing a keyword search and see what else you can find. Awesome tips. Any others that you have that you would love to share with our folks? Well, one other thing that I think people don't realize maybe because it's not as obvious, is let's talk about family trees on Ancestry. These are wonderful because they allow you a place to create a tree. It's it's stored not on your computer. You know, it's up in the cloud. Wherever you go, you have access as long as you have the internet and with the app as well. And You know, we like making our trees public, and that's kind of the default, because that helps lead other people to us. But you can create a private tree, and I often do this. In fact, I probably have 10 to 15 private trees right now. Now, what do I use them for? Well, you know, I use them to kind of sort out genealogy problems. If I'm working with someone who has a very common name, I might do a private tree to make sure that my Samuel Jackson is the Samuel Jackson that I mean to research and not someone else's, for example. I heard somebody in a seminar not too long ago tell me that they don't put their tree online because they feel like they're not done. Yes. And I'm thinking, oh, no, you're missing this tool. And that's what you're talking about. Exactly. And, you know, once you get that sorted out and you feel better about it, and, you know, I like that idea of my tree isn't done. It's probably never going to be done. (laughs) We hope not. (laughs) Right? And you don't have to have a huge tree, you know, online. But once you feel like you've sorted some of that out and it's at a place you like, you can make it public. So, you know, you can start Mm -hmm. private and then make it public so that other people can see it. You can download it in case you have a genealogy software program. And that allows you to take that work and, you know, download it to your own computer. Or quite frankly, if you decide, you know what, that wasn't the guy I was researching or there's a problem and and I don't want other people to see it, delete it. You don't have to keep it. Exactly. Don't let having a public tree scare you off from using family trees on Ancestry. Go ahead and make it private and kind of go from there. And even though they're not getting the benefit necessarily of connecting with other researchers with that private tree, they are still tapping into the hints. In addition to a workspace, you're still also generating some new possible leads. Definitely. And, you know, I think it's important to have a goal when you're doing these things. And if your goal is, I I need to figure this problem out, then a private tree is great. If your goal is, I want people to find me, then obviously you need a public tree. But you know, don't not use a feature of Ancestry because you feel like you don't want other people to see it. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of that beyond the edges, beyond the the obvious that goes on on Ancestry. And that's what you learn in this course with Gina, who's really an expert in Ancestry.com. Gina, tell us a little bit real quickly before I let you go, what will people be learning in the Power Course? 
I think what's important to know is this isn't just about searching because we have a course on that mm-hmm. and it's excellent. This is where we're going to look at family trees. We're going to look at the online records. We're going to look at the DNA part of ancestry. And we're going to look at how do you solve research problems. So this is really kind of taking a look at various aspects of Ancestry and how can you make the most of your subscription to Ancestry. So you'll get much more than just maybe some search tips. You're going to get, how do I really make the most out of this subscription? Yeah, get the most out of all these tools and maybe become aware of some of the tools that you didn't even know were there waiting to be used. Exactly. It really is a great course. And like you say, it's more than just search. This has been so much fun. And I know everybody has really probably looking forward to kind of rain out and using some of the tips that you've talked about. Those of you listening are interested in becoming even more of an Ancestry.com power user. We've got the course for you. And that's uh, starting up again in June. So I will have a link in the show notes. And if you're listening later down the road, of course, it's a recurring course. So we'll have the link that takes you over to Family Tree University. So you can check out the latest one that you can attend. Thanks so much. Always so fun and so informative to talk to you, Gina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today in our 101 Best Website segment, we're going to invite the author of the list, Dave Frixell, back to the show to talk about a site with all kinds of awesome newspapers in it. Hi, Dave. Hi, good to be here. Good to have you here. We're going to be talking about Elephant. You got to love the name, right? An elephant never forgets and it can find newspapers. (laughs) Tell us about it. Exactly. It's a cute name. I like it. It has a neat little logo with the... uh elephant uh, holding up the world on its trunk. So uh, yes. points for cleverness there. So elephant.com. Now, this is kind of like a Google search for uh, newspapers, isn't it? It's focused on newspapers. Exactly. And what's cool about it is, you know, there are a lot of newspaper sites that are, and a lot of them that are free, which is what this one searches. Uh, and you're probably familiar with like the Library of Congress, Chronicles of America, which is terrific. But this searches that and a bunch of others. So you don't have to go hunting around typing in individual, you know, web addresses. There's all kinds of ones over literally around the world. It has a particularly good, besides the U.S., a particularly good collection of Australian sites. So if you happen to have ancestors who made their way to Australia, this will find them in Australian newspapers who even knew that those were online. Is Elephant concentrating just on digitized papers or are they looking at catalogs as well? It's primarily newspapers. They have uh, something like, let's say, 3.4 million newspapers and uh, from 3,566 newspaper titles, according to the site right now. So we're looking at pages, which means we're going to get a chance to really look at these pages themselves and, and do the search. So 3,500, more than 3,500 newspaper titles, that's a lot of pages. How do we find the one that we need? Well, there are two ways really to search, and the beauty of the site is you can do a basic search just as easy as can be. Basically, when you come to the uh, home page, you just type in, the example they use is John Quincy Adams. You type in John Quincy Adams, and it will find all the uh, newspapers on its site with John and Quincy and Adams. If you want to search as a phrase, you can close it in quotation marks, so it couldn't be much simpler. So that's your basic search. But then if, you know, you're, let's say you don't have ancestors in Australia and you're getting them all kinds of hits from Australia, you can click on the, there's a little advanced search right to the right of the search button. 
And suddenly you have a lot more choices, and this is really powerful. You can search all text. You can do uh, all text except also user comments. Uh, you search only titles and headlines. So sometimes that's useful depending on uh, uh, you know what kind of thing you're looking for. You can there you can set a date range. You can choose by country, by sources, and you can specify individual titles by just starting to type them in there. So. You know, you might go back and forth. You could look at the list of titles and and say, oh, okay, I want to, you know, I didn't realize they had the, you know, Rock Island Daily Express, and then put that in. Or you, if you don't know that precisely, you could say, okay, I want to search all the titles in this, you know, part of the country, for example. And then eventually it will take you to the site of the that's actually hosting the uh, newspaper. So in the case of the Library of Congress, for example, you'll go off to the Chronicling America website. But, you know, you might find other ones that, you know, there's there's some in Indiana archive, for example, that has a couple dozen uh, newspapers. And you might never have known that that existed or known to include it in your search. And this way, um, you get all these, uh, uh, you know, great options. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, even if you just want to browse, you can do that. They have a link at the top for a list of titles. You can kind of, and there's also that little picture of the newspapers. We can click browse the newspaper archives. I've been here over the last couple of years since it's been up and running. I didn't notice. I don't know if they've been adding some new items here at the top in the menu. I see that you can register and log in. And also that they have a content update schedule, so you can see maybe what's coming down the pipeline. Exactly, and really, it is. If you just scroll through the list of titles, I mean, you know, under the Chronicle America, for example, just the A's to the you know to the Earlington, Kentucky B fill my entire screen. So uh, yeah. you know, it goes on and on and on. And I had to scroll through a lot of Australian titles to get to that point. There's a whole bunch of Japanese ones also. It's called the Japanese Diaspora Initiative. You know, again, who would have thought? They have the, I see the Illinois Digital Newspaper Collections, Indiana. I, I undersold that. They're actually a lot more than two dozen. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. Digital Michigan Newspapers, Montana Historical Society has one, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, again, you don't have to know that these sites exist or these collections exist. They'll find, you know, we'll search them for you automatically unless you basically unless you tell it not to. And, of course, with newspapers, I mean, I found ancestors' obituaries, marriage announcements, and then you find, you know, the funky things like, you know, ancestor named to city council, you know, ancestor killed an accident, mm-hmm. you know. You find the good and the bad and, and things that maybe you, uh, you know, didn't even realize were true about your ancestor. Right. And, and I love also taking it to the kind of sideways where you're maybe searching on the business they worked for, the address they lived at, the school they went to. You never know how you can kind of fill in the details around their entire life all through newspapers. The site makes it easy to, to search for those things. You don't have to search for names. It's just an yeah. open end. There's no like first name, last name, you know, kind of blank. You could fill in, you know, John Deere company and, you know, pick a, a town in a year and find out, you know, what was going on with your ancestor's employer back when. Mm-hmm. You could sort of use almost a social history tool where you fill in the blanks about, you know, what was going on, you know, maybe why did they leave that town? You know, well, maybe yeah. the economy collapsed in, you know, the, the time that they left. Or what was it like when they got there? You know, why maybe did they pick that particular town? You know, they didn't just throw it out of a hat. There must have been some reason 
And you can even find ancestors you didn't know existed, of course. If you, you, know, you search for the, the name, uh, and then you, suddenly it pops up. If you have a name like mine, if they're for cells, they're pretty much one of two families. So I got, you know, a 50-50 shot. So <laughs> I always exactly. just type in Frixell and just see what comes up in some of these. It's a great international resource, as Dave mentions here. And it's Elefind. It's E-L-E-P-H-I-N-D.com. Right. Just like Elephant. Okay, well, fabulous. Okay, we know everybody listening is excited now to go and start searching. And you can always not only uh, take advantage of the tips that Dave mentioned, but click that search tips link at the top of the website to get more details on how to get the most out of it. Thanks so much, Dave. You always have great websites to talk about. Happy to help. Well, something else that's changed a lot in a very short period of time is DNA testing. And it's the role that DNA is playing in genealogy research. So in this Top Tips segment, I've invited Shannon Combs Bennett back to the show to guide us through selecting the right DNA test for our research. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me today. So good to have you back. You know, most people have heard of the Ancestry DNA test, at least, thanks, of course, to all their TV commercials. But that's just one in a growing industry. So I'd love to start out with where should the genealogists start when they first start thinking about taking a DNA test? What are some of the first questions they have to answer? That's a really good question. And so many people just jump into DNA testing because they think it sounds fun or neat or, you know, somebody gave them a test for, you know, whatever holiday. But I honestly feel that sometimes the best way to start a DNA testing process is what do you want to have answered? You know, what's your brick wall question? What do you want to find out? Because if you use a DNA test as another record, essentially, in your genealogical research, you'll find you have a lot more success with it. You're not as bogged down, okay? And that sometimes that look, people look at me like, what? <laughs> but if you, but it's kind of like doing a research question, right? What do you yeah. want to find out? So if you know what you want to find out, you can then determine what test you should start with. Now, all the tests on the market start out easily enough with autosomal DNA. Everybody offers that. That's the 50% of the DNA that you get from your mom and 50% that you get from your dad. So we're not talking about direct maternal line or direct paternal line or anything like that. It's just like the generic, what makes you, you DNA. And if you have a question that goes beyond that, so let's say you want to have a question on like your direct father's, 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 father's line, then you would want to take a Y DNA test. Or if you have a question on your direct, a direct maternal line, so your mother's, 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 mother's side, then you would want to take a mitochondrial DNA test. Now, the only company right now that offers those tests that you can then do analysis with and find matches with is at Family Tree DNA. So it makes it a little bit easier if you're going to do that. You only have one testing company to choose from. But there are, you know, four main players on the market right now in the United States, and there's some other ones that are up and coming. So it, it does get complicated. Where do you where do you start? What should you do? And the question I get asked, which to me sometimes is a little bit loaded, is which is best? And you know, it just honest, honestly depends on 
what you want to find out because they each have their own pros and cons. And unless you know you've won the lottery recently, not everybody (laughs) can test everywhere and do everything at one time. Right. So talk a little bit for just a moment before we get into the different companies that there's a big difference between autosomal, which I think is just the generic DNA test everybody hears about. That's really what we're talking about. And the Y-DNA mitochondrial, because those are very narrow, but they're very deep. Yes. And autosomal is not. Is that's it? correct. That's a good that's a good analogy for it. So autosomal DNA, like I said, 50% of what you have in you is from your mom and 50% is from your dad. And everyone has 23 pairs of chromosomes. So you got 23 from your mom and 23 from your dad. The autosomal DNA are 22 of those pairs. So the last pair is the X and the Y, which we're just going to shove off into a corner for a minute. (laughs) But those 22 autosomal chromosomes, okay, that's the autosomal DNA test. Now, every generation, you can lose 50% of that DNA. Exactly. Okay, so it's really only, quote unquote, good for a short period of time. Now, some people have luck where they've got confirmed DNA matches seven, eight generations back, because I have a friend who is just as nerdy into DNA as I am, (laughs) and we have really good uh, New England trees, we were able to figure out that she and my husband, we knew on paper, were 10th cousins three times removed. Wow. Okay, somebody else gets to do that math. But they couldn't figure out. They kept coming up with this teeny, tiny, little bitty DNA segment. And after about three years and looking at other people's charts, they figured out that little bitty segment was from the Whipple family, which is the family of that common ancestor. That is like the most, what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) furthest back I've ever found? Most people have really good success up to five to seven generations. For an average generation, that's about 200 years, so give or take a little bit. Mm -hmm. But on the Y DNA, which is inherited by men only, so if you are looking for a Y DNA test, if you're not a guy, you're going to have to find someone to take it for you, that can go back especially with what are called haplogroups, thousands of years, okay? And the same thing with mitochondria. Luckily, a mother gives her mitochondrial DNA to all of her children, so both men and women can take this test. But it only, because mothers only are the ones who pass it on, it'll only trace back, once again, if you look at deep ancestry, you can go thousands of years. And in the regular geneticist world, so not genealogy, but we're talking, you know, biomed and university research, they study these haplogroups and migration patterns from thousands of years ago. And you can find papers when you get those funny, if you take one of these tests, you'll get a string of letters and numbers and they'll say like your haplogroup K or U or T or whatever. There are people out there who study those and have been doing studies for 30 or more years. And you can read their research and they will show you how the different patterns have changed and who goes where and they have really intricate migration patterns. It could be very fascinating if it's something that you like to read. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And so really, as you said, we're talking six, seven generations tops, usually with autosomal, but that's across the board. It's across all lines. Yes, all lines. And why DNA and mitochondrial, of course, are just down one line. It's very narrow, but again, it goes back very far. Now, we know that those are handled at Family Tree DNA, but let's say we're talking about the autosomal test, which I think tends to be what people go for. 
there are several major players out there. And what are some of the criteria? If, if you could only afford one test, you know, how do you make that decision about which one to go with? Oh, that's a really good question. My first big suggestion is if you're tied on money is to make sure you keep a lookout for sales. All of these companies usually have sales around Mother's Day, Father's Day, DNA month, which was this past April, mm-hmm. Christmas, Black Friday sales. So you can get tests for as little as, you know, $60 which they're usually, you know, upwards up to 100 with tax and shipping and all of that. So keep your eyes out for sales. Or if you go to conferences, sometimes if you're able to get even to a regional level conferences, a lot of these companies are starting to have booths there and they'll have conference specials. So different ways to save money. The other thing you could do is Ancestry seems to be the company that most other companies will accept DNA data from. So what I sometimes suggest to people is that you test at Ancestry.com. Ancestry DNA, usually it's $79.99, but it'll vary, obviously. And then with that, you can transfer your data to Family Tree, to 23andMe, to MyHeritage. And while the transfer is free and you can start to see some of the data, there's sometimes if you start getting hits and you want to see more information, For instance, you can pay $39 at Family Tree DNA, and then you'll have access to all of your matches. So sometimes there is an upcharge, Mm -hmm. but seeing as that's sometimes a third of what you would have paid for a DNA test from that company, it can be very economical. And then, of course, there's always GEDmatch, which takes DNA from most of the companies that are out there on the market, and then you can upload it into a database there, and it's a free database. So that's another way to start. Well, as you can see, there's several things to consider right out of the gate Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about DNA. And I know that you have been working on a blog series for the Genealogy Insider blog, FamilyTreeMagazine.com, and you're going to be walking them even further through this. Tell us a little bit about that series. Yeah, sure. It's going to be five posts, and I'm going to be covering five different DNA companies which offer testing here in the United States. Of course, we're going to cover Ancestry. That seems to be the place majority of people, thanks to their wonderful marketing, (laughs) they tend to test first. And then we'll also cover Family Tree DNA and not only their autosomal DNA option, but also their Y and mitochondrial DNA option. So you have a nice idea of what that company offers. We'll also go through 23andMe, comparing their medical testing versus their medical and genealogy testing. Mm -hmm. My Heritage. And then the fifth one is Living DNA. And Living DNA is fairly new here. It's a British company. And they only do, they don't do sharing, but a lot of genealogists are very interested in it because they claim, it's their big thing, is that they can really pinpoint where your family is from. And my husband and I just got our results back two weeks ago. So we're pouring through those right now. And if you're willing to pay an extra $50, they publish a book for you, a nice soft bound book with all of the results. So you get a little uh, extra buck, a uh, bang for your buck. But um, unfortunately, the only drawback to that one is there's no sharing with other genealogists. And that makes a big difference. Does. I have to ask the question. Sure. You mentioned that they can pinpoint where your family is from. But we know if we are going across all lines, we know how quickly those multiply. There's a zillion families in there. It sounds almost illogical 
when you say that. What does that mean? I know. (laughs) So that's a really good question. And it's something that I try to point out to a lot of people, especially the, you know, my husband's favorite thing is, but where's my German? (laughs) (laughs) He has two confirmed second great-grandmothers. One was from Denmark and one was from Bavaria, but he has very little Central European show up. Mostly what he has is British Isles and Scandinavian. And of course, he would tease me for a while after he took his first DNA test saying, I don't see my German. This isn't very good. (laughs) But I like to remind people that all you're going to see in these ethnicity tests are what you've inherited. And even siblings can be drastically different because, once again, it's all that random combination of what you inherited versus what somebody else inherited. And we don't all inherit the same things. Exactly. So how does it tell you then where your family is from? Yeah. See, I'm still reading my book on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because even if you find a match, it's like, you know, which segment? There's a lot more to it, isn't there? And it doesn't necessarily go to one final place because by the time you get back that far, you're talking about a lot of different families. Yes, that is correct. And like with the Living DNA, because they're a primarily a British company, mm-hmm. they have a lot of success with families who have a large British heritage. So for me, when I'm, I'm looking at the book right now, it's able to, what it says, pinpoint that I have 23% Central England, 18% East Anglia, 7% Cornwall. So they get really, really specific. And I'm still reading about that because I'm like, how do they know that? <laughs> and that's really specific. Yeah. Okay. So I see what you're saying. It's not like the test is that Living DNA is going to take you down to this one final resting right. place. What they're really saying is of the percentages, we can tell you a whole lot more than just Britain. Correct. We can say Cornwall. We can, And I think, like you say, that's that centuries of people really just staying on the island yeah, and not moving much. And of course, people didn't move near as much way back. Although sometimes I look at some of my relatives, I can't believe how they roamed around the earth when there's no airplane or anything. So that can happen. But I see what you're saying. It's really understanding when you hear the, the different claims and the offerings that we put it in perspective of what that really means. And it's not like there's one final family that we're going to end up finding. Right. It's giving you ideas of where the markers you inherited match other people in the world. And so for me, looking at those, I know I have like two or three families that came from the East Anglian area. So that kind of makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. when I'm looking at the Irish breakdowns, all right, well, that does reflect where the areas of the island my family came to the United States from. So that does make a lot of sense. But it's not going to say this is the little bitty town you're from. (laughs) It doesn't get that good. (laughs) Well, fascinating stuff. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about DNA. Thank you so much for getting us started for those who are still kind of on the fence trying to decide how and they would go about doing this if they want to. And of course, they can learn a whole lot more by following your blog series. So we'll have a link over to the Genealogy Insider blog in the show notes. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for joining me for this May 2018 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. 
To find notes on everything we talked about in today's episode, head to FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcasts. And you can hear more from me, Lisa Louise Cook, on the Genealogy Gems podcast at GenealogyGems.com, in iTunes, and the Genealogy Gems podcast app. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.